Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Corey Estrada, co-founder of RiseWell, an oral care brand that swaps in safe and natural alternatives that are clean and effective. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Corey Estrada of RiseWell. Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up and what would you say your childhood was like? So I was born in Augusta, Georgia, and about a year and a half after I was born, my parents moved up to um, Newport, Rhode Island, which is a very scenic coastal town, a really great childhood. Um, my dad was in the textile industry, uh, so he saw sort of from a business perspective, really the ups and downs of his career, which sort of I'm sure as we'll get into later on, informed a lot of how I came to eventually form um, Risewell with my co-founders. Mm. So yeah, growing up as a kid, um, what kind of influence did that have on yourself, if it did at all, or what were some of your aspirations as a kid growing up? Well, one, I think really important thing on the entrepreneurial side. So I um, went to boarding school in New Hampshire for high school, and then I went to Columbia in New York City and was really excited to be in a big, large city. Um, and I you know, early on realized it was a very expensive city uh, that required actually getting a job to afford to do fun things on the weekends. Mm. Um, and my mom had dropped me off at school with about $20 a week allowance. So I knew that that wouldn't cut it in New York City, um, even though this was, you know, 15 years ago, I guess, at this point. But yeah, um, so New York was was an amazing place to be able to not only go to school, but also I worked about 30 hours a week at a real estate investment firm and mm. a hedge fund and decided that I wanted to go into finance, which I was really excited about. I, uh, I actually had a philosophy and economics degree from Columbia, so it wasn't necessarily the most intuitive path, but yeah. uh, we didn't have sort of the kind of more generalized uh, business majors. But one thing um, my dad told me after I, I got a job in investment banking and I started that in the summer and got a full-time offer. And I remember my dad congratulating me, but also reminding me that I wouldn't actually be fulfilled by just, as he called it, pushing money around. And so he said that you at some point will have to create something that you can feel with your hands and that is actually yours to really find fulfillment professionally. Obviously, this was his opinion um, and sort of colored by kind of his past. Uh, but it was actually something that I sort of held on to for a long time. And um, while I'm currently still in finance, uh, I about five or six years ago, when we started on the journey to start RiseWell, um, that was something very much top of mind was was eventually kind of creating a business that wasn't just, as my dad called, pushing money around. Mm, yeah, that, that's interesting. I'm curious at this time, so you graduated from Columbia. Once you left and got into investment banking, I'm sure the listeners know the the critical hours that are involved into that. How did you find time to then kind of like venture off on your own? You, you don't need to get totally into the founding story yet, but how did you find time to really explore some entrepreneurial paths? Yeah, I think it helped. I mean, we if this wasn't right after college, and so I think the the hardest points in one career probably you know in finance or in your twenties, and um, and I actually graduated in two thousand seven, which I'm sure a lot of people remember was a mm. very interesting time to graduate. It was we had I always describe it as I saw the good times and the bad times. I mean, two thousand seven at that point, business was still doing very well. The stock market 
was still near highs. And, um, you know, I think they were serving lobsters to interns. You know, when I started that quickly changed as as the economy and the world um, was sort of worsening during the global financial crisis. Hmm. Um, but during that time, I mean, it was still it was very busy. I mean, we were doing more sort of debt restructurings and trying to save companies and creative ways to sort of help out sort of our, our businesses that we worked worked with at the time. Uh, but there were certainly no hours then to be working on side businesses. Um, yeah. I did that for two years and then went to a hedge fund. And similarly, I mean, when you're sort of just trying to get started in the industry, I think there's there's no time. But, um, you know, me and John and the two of us co-founded Rizal with my brother um, would always sort of say to each other that if we spend as much time uh, that we spent in investment banking or in finance, on starting our own business, we were confident that we would be successful because we were just devoting so much of our lives to something that wasn't really sort yeah. of ours per se. For sure. I'm curious then, um, so your, your co-founders, how what, what were they in? What industry were they in? How does like investment banking tie into that as well, especially an oral care product? Did they have any background with that or what, what was that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not, I certainly never imagined, uh, even after the conversations with my dad, uh, getting into the oral care industry. My brother, who is another one of the co-founders, Derek Gatta, he um, is a prosthodontist. So he mm. is very much in the oral care industry. He lives and breathes that every single day. And um, so he's sort of our connection to that and, you know, happy to get into sort of the founding story. But yeah, uh, yeah I, it wasn't um, a, a, a an easy jump per se. A, to to get into oral care, um, but essentially, you know, we were looking to solve a problem that we had at the time, and felt like kind uh, of an outsider's perspective would be the best served in order to solve that problem. Yeah, getting into the founding story, then. So the Rise, Risewell comes around 2016. What what was that mm-hmm. problem that you saw with the existing oral care industry? Yeah, so we um, at the time, John and I were going through IVF. Um, mm-hmm. I have something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, and um, I knew kind of early on that I would um, have to go through the IVF process. And I'm sure, as you've heard, that it's not sort of the easiest, but also financially, it's very expensive. Yeah. And so we we felt strongly that we wanted to make sure we were doing everything possible to make it a success. I didn't want to have to do it multiple times if I could avoid it. Yep. So sat, we sat down with our doctor and said. What, what can we do to make sure that this is as successful as possible? And he said, besides the obvious taking medications and eating well, um, he also mentioned uh, being careful with the everyday products that we are using. And I hadn't thought a ton about uh, the sort of um, sort of the consumer products in my household as much as I had food. I've always been um, health and wellness minded when it came to eating right. Yeah. Um, but frankly, hadn't really concentrated much on the ingredients in my products. Mm. So, of course, we went home right away. We turned our apartment upside down and realized that most of the products we had in our apartment had some not so great ingredients Mm -hmm. in them. There's a lot of easy apps to use. We, at the time, used one called Think Dirty, and you essentially scan the products that you have, and it gives it a score Uh. based on how sort of good or bad it is. Um, So I think I went through everything, sort of scanning all the products and realizing we have to throw everything out. And, uh, you know, they're actually most of our products had good replacements. So replacements that had ingredients that sort of met the standard that were effective, although I always caveat it. Deodorant is the one category. And I hope someone proves me wrong at some point. But you really can't stop perspiration naturally. So that's the one area that you just kind of have to give up on that. Um, But when it came to toothpaste, I think the challenge that we saw was that 
um, essentially natural toothpaste as we, we learned from my brother, um, his point to us was, look, that's great, switch to natural toothpaste, but you might as well brush with water was literally what he told us. Mm. Because most natural toothpaste, they take out the effective ingredients like fluoride yeah. um, and other things, and then they don't replace it with anything. Exactly. And so you're largely left with a flavored paste, yep. which while harmless, isn't actually doing much for your teeth. Yep. So save the money and just use water. And and that was kind of our our light bulb moment when we said that we need to create something for ourselves that actually works as well as conventional toothpaste. Yeah. But the major difference being that we want to treat the ingredients for toothpaste like food, because for instance, face wash, shampoo, um, cleaning sprays in your house, you're not ingesting those two times a day with toothpaste. As you probably know, your gums are highly absorbent, and yep. that's why sublingual medication exists. It's actually some, one of the fastest ways into your system. Um, and people don't realize that with toothpaste, they think I'm spitting out. And so yeah. it's fine to have ingredients in our crate, but you're actually absorbing a lot of those ingredients twice a day. And so we wanted to create something that really met two things. Number one, we treat it like food was safe enough to eat because also my now um, five-year-old, he does not spit toothpaste, even though he's, he's five. Um, and so I don't worry about him eating the entire tube of toothpaste that can happen. And I, there's, there's no safety issues. Um, and then yeah. the other thing we really cared about was making sure that it met the standard of being able to be a product that my brother as a dentist would recommend. Yeah. Um, and so that's why in most people, they go to their dentist and they're still handing out the conventional toothpaste at the yeah. end of a visit, because really until we launched, there wasn't a solution for people that dentists could get behind. Mm. I'd like to get into some of those ingredient replacements, especially the key ones that you, you think was a part of the founding. I know like sodium lauryl sulfate, SLS is a foaming detergent and that's what makes for the listeners out there, that's what makes you feel clean. But at the end of the day, that's mm -hmm. when that's in your laundry detergent. I know you guys are SLS free. <laughs> so like that, for example, what else you have a fluoride replacement? What are those key ingredients mm -hmm. that you switched over? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It sounds like you're already more knowledgeable than most people. I used to work for a dentist in New York actually. So. <laughs> So, oh wow! Okay, yeah, yeah. so I didn't I didn't have that background, but that's yeah. that's great. <laughs> so you know all the ins and outs, I guess, of the dental world. A little, but uh, yeah. So we um, we actually found our key ingredient in Japan. It's called hydroxyapatite, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, it doesn't sound very natural. But it's actually ninety seven percent of what your teeth enamel is made of is made of hydroxyapatite. Your bones are actually seventy percent hydroxyapatite. Dentists are actually very familiar with this ingredient ingredient because they know your enamel's hydroxyapatite based. Yep. Um, but they aren't aware that it's something that's in products, which for the most part in the US, it really wasn't until we launched. Yeah. Um, and so I guess rewinding a bit to sort of our founding story, um, John and I always did a, a bunch of traveling and, and we I remember us being in Japan at one point. And every time we'd go to a country at this point, we're, we're looking at ingredients, we're trying to figure out what are other countries doing. And we realized that there's this hydroxyapatite ingredient popping up. Uh, mm. And when we looked into it, we realized it was actually a really cool story behind it. It was invented in the 70s by NASA when astronauts were coming back, their enamel was weakening. And they asked themselves, how do we help to support this sort of weakening enamel and recreate what they actually what, what one's teeth is made of. Mm. Um, so they figured out how to chemically manufacture hydroxyapatite in the 70s. And of course, the Japanese quickly hear about this and decide we need to put this in our toothpaste. So the Japanese have been using this in their toothpaste. It's 
actually the majority of toothpaste in Japan is made of hydroxyapatite instead of wow. fluoride. And they also don't put fluoride in their water. So it's very interesting from a sort of a clinical studies perspective, because we can actually look at the, the cavities rates in a country that both doesn't use fluoride in their water and also mostly doesn't use fluoride in their toothpaste. And they actually have lower caries rates than they do in the US. Wow. Um, in Europe, they're also using this as well. Um, so it's something that um, we were really excited about because it's really how your body naturally helps to remineralize. And a lot of people think that once you lose enamel, you can never get it back. And it's actually true with fluoride because fluoride essentially hardens the existing enamel you have and it, it's definitely effective yeah. um, but its mechanism of action is different because we're essentially taking the crystal and adding more you know onto the crystal that exists on your uh, enamel so you are in a sense actually adding more enamel mm. um, which is why it also helps with sensitivity because it sensitivity is essentially caused by scraping away enamel from drinking too much wine or acidic things or whitening yep. your teeth and it exposes the tubes in your teeth which lead to the sensitivity most toothpaste actually just numb it the yep. things that you've brands you've heard of um and so we actually are the crystals are filling in those holes and so our toothpaste actually sort of helps problems from the source which i think mm. is extremely beneficial and there's no safety issues so parents don't need to worry about oh no my baby swallowed the whole tooth the toothpaste yeah. you don't need to worry um and like you said we don't use things like the foaming agents because they are can be very harsh your gums are actually very delicate um yeah. and they're absorbent um and we also avoid things like triclosan which which is banned in hand soap, but it's still in toothpaste. And um, and then one of the other um, set of beneficial ingredients are the sugar alcohols that we use, which also sound unnatural. Um, they're actually naturally de derived, um, but yeah. they serve a really important purpose. And they're essentially helping to eliminate the bad bacteria in your mouth because they think it's sugar. They go to eat it and it actually kills them. Mm. Um, so instead of scorching the entire mouth, like alcohol mouthwash does and killing all the good and the bad bacteria, um, this is very targeted and just kills the bad bacteria. Mm. So I know that was a handful, so I'll it's stop very there. Descriptive. No, that's good. That's great. Um, bouncing off of like the, the founding story and the formulation process. So being one of the first players really in this kind of natural replacing fluoride field, um, what did that formulating process look like? Did you lean onto your brother and did you have an advisory board or who did you work with? Yeah, it's a great question because we didn't, of course, have, uh, you know, John actually, he had a certain engineering background. So he had sort of a bit more than my philosophy economics degree. But um, my brother, we certainly leaned on him. I mean, yeah. he he was also great from the um, you know, I always joke that dentists aren't necessarily the best business people, but he knew what dentists would need to he hear and see and that the studies had to be strong. He convinced them that this was something that they could recommend to their patients. Yeah. Um, we also formed a scientific council of um, doctors and dentists to help us in the formulation and then worked with a formulator who had a lot of experience sort of in the oral care uh, world. But also we needed somebody who could think more naturally minded because if we didn't want somebody to take the existing formulas that were out there and create a new flavor, like oftentimes happens in a lot of things yeah. in the consumer space. This was essentially in, in introducing a new ingredient to the world. And there's a lot of education that mm -hmm. is required to do that because since the 1950s, dentists have been taught one thing. And sadly, 
Um, and yep. my brother kind of always tells us this, that in dental school, he, as a prosthodontist, had to just go to an extra four years of dental school. Yep. So he's done plenty of schooling. And he said he's had about three minutes of education when it came to oral care products. Wow. Um, so unfortunately, there's not a lot of time devoted to what are the best products for your patients to be using. Yep. Uh, so that oddly actually falls on us a lot of the time to explain hydroxyapatite, how it works to show them all the studies from Japan and Europe. Um, and outside of the U.S., you can actually make anti-cavity claims in the U.S. It's more complicated um, yeah. for probably obvious reasons. But um, yes, so uh, we, we had a, you know, I think we tried to let our ego be as limited as possible going into this and recognize yeah. that we weren't going to be the most experienced oral care people ever. But probably, as you can tell, since then, we have actually become yep. certainly much more educated than sadly most dentists because they just don't have time to think about this. Yep. Um, but we had to spend a lot of time in that and also lean on people who were sort of had different perspectives, were doctors and dentists and all different sort of viewpoints to help inform making the best product. Mm. Yeah, rolling out into a field that's conventionally and traditionally just people walk into their oral care aisle, they see the one brand, they go to that. How did you guys roll out into, as a new player in 2016? Uh, what was your marketing like convincing consumers to switch over to a natural product like yours? Yeah, so we didn't have a ton of money when we started. I mean, this yeah. has been a pretty um, capital lean business, which sort of was something that we were very thoughtful about because two out of three of the founders come with finance backgrounds and yeah. we wanted to make sure we weren't dependent on outside capital. And so that was, and even to this day, actually, we we have one investor. Um, we took one investment prior to, to starting, but the company has been profitable and sort of runs on its own. And so we're not not dependent on that next check, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but essentially in the beginning, you know, we, it was a lot of um, word of mouth, honestly, with, with dentists. I mean, we started really scrappy and, you know, to see how much we've grown since then is we always have to pinch ourselves because it's, it's pretty amazing. But today, I mean, most of our business is still direct to consumer. We're in almost a thousand dental offices, which Incredible. Um, we actually just recently hired somebody to manage our dental accounts. I know that sounds crazy after this many years, but <laughs> it was really an organic thing. I mean, one dentist sort of told another dentist um, and that's how a lot of the, the word got out early on. And it does make, I mean, for us to be able to go into a dentist's office and um, have a product that's truly as effective or more than conventional toothpaste, but yeah. with zero safety issues was not something that dentists had the option to give to their patients before this. Uh, yeah. So we really, I think, stuck to our knitting in terms of what, what our priorities were and what our brand ethos was. Uh, and it helps when you don't have a product that, uh, you know, my comparison is always, if you're a company that wants to come out with a new red lipstick, yeah, essentially it's going to be just a marketing thing that differentiates you from the last one. Maybe there's new technologies that I'm aware of, of yeah. but for the most part, th there hasn't been much change for red lipsticks in probably a very long time. So sure. you either just have nicer packaging or you have a celebrity that's endorsing it, yep. that that's kind of how you get customers. For us, it was explaining this, which unfortunately does take a little bit of time, which yeah. as you can tell, I mean, I can go on for a long time, <laughs> um, but you have to tell the story because A, most people don't re realize that the ingredients in their toothpaste aren't that great. Yep. And and after they do, they also aren't aware that there are other options besides some of the fluoride conventional toothpaste that exists today. Mm. Getting into some of your other products. So outside of the toothpaste, did you only launch with the toothpaste or did you launch with a couple others? Um, SKUs? So we launched with our mint flavor 
or which is what we call our adult toothpaste, but obviously kids can use it, of course. And then yep. we also had a kid's toothpaste as well, um, which is, we call it cake batter, but it's actually just vanilla flavored. And funny enough, this is how sort of obsessive we are with every ingredient. Our most expensive ingredient in our products is the the real vanilla extract, Oh wow! which is actually very expensive. So it's not cake batter. I know that sounds unnatural, but um, that's more just to, to make kids happy. But it actually <laughs> does taste like cake batter because when you have real vanilla extract yeah. um, and yeah. some of the sugar alcohols in there, it, it is pretty yummy, um, but also uh, you know much more clean th than other flavors. For so sure. those were the two first products that we launched with. And then we also um, had a mouthwash and a floss that came out shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. um, and the floss was actually the first ever, even outside of the U.S., floss that has the hydroxy appetite woven into it, which ah. most people don't realize that most cavities actually start in the cracks of your teeth. Yep. And so being able to deposit the hydroxy appetite in those small cracks is um, a really beneficial thing. So, mm. um, and we, unlike many other brands, even natural brands, we disclose all of the ingredients on our box of floss, which crazy enough, if you actually, um, consumer brands are not required to on consumer products like floss to disclose ingredients. So if you go to, you know, your local CVS and, and look at floss, you're never going to know what's in your floss. Um, and yeah. sadly there's Teflon, which is, is what causes it to glide between your teeth, yep. which we of course avoid. Um, so that was, um, I guess our fourth product. And then we also have new flavors that have come out more recently, um, and mints as well. Amazing. Yeah. I, I would love to get into the mints. So, I mean, floss, toothpaste, toothbrush, et cetera, that's listeners are aware of that, but I love the background. I looked at the website, the mints as well that are functional. If you can kind of get into that and how it can taste good, be functional and can be swallowed and consumed at the same time. So how does that work? Yeah, well, just like, I mean, we, we truly think of every product as has to meet the bar of being safe enough to eat. And so mints were really an easy thing for us to do in that sense, because we were already thinking about our products like food. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people are aware that there's mints and gum that already existed on the market that have things like xylitol in them. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of back to our prior conversation, as I noted, xylitol, it's good for eliminating the bad bacteria in your mouth. Um, so, um, we sort of combined the, the xylitol and the sugar alcohols with the hydroxy appetite for the really that added kick, because most people probably haven't thought of this, but the reason that you don't see mints with xylitol and fluoride is that you shouldn't be ingesting fluoride. I mean, they yeah. tell you there's a po poison control warning on the back of toothpaste. Um, and so the, the recommendation is not to be consuming large amounts of fluoride. And frankly, if it's in your drinking water, you're already probably getting too much of it. Yep. Um, so that's why they just stick to xylitol and mints. So for us, it was great because we were able to give consumers something that's even more effective and cleaner than what existed on the market. Mm. Um, and then the, the really cool part about the mints is that I use them for sort of as mints. But one could also, if you're, say, camping or traveling on an airplane and you don't want to take any liquids with you, you could bring the mints and use them as toothpaste instead. Um, there's other brands that have actually been doing that in the market for a while. Mm. Um, but they sort of are a multi-purpose mint, but much more effective than the other options that have been on the market. Incredible. Getting into kind of your consumer today, I've taken some of that feedback that you guys received. Of course, oral care is um, a universal product, but... What would you say is the main demographic if you can depict that? You know, I think it's it's 
much more diversified than I, I figured that it would be, you know, especially in the beginning, um, if I looked at my dentist and our consumers, that it would have been sort of city areas that would have kind of adopted us um, earlier. But yeah. interestingly, it's actually, I mean, our dentist population is really broad based all over the country. I mean, even in you know Alaska and Hawaii and small parts of, of the country. And mm. um, so um, I think it's much more sort of broad based than one would anticipate. What I would say is that I think the biggest thing that resonates with our consumers is that we are, as noted before, very obsessive with ingredients yeah. and people are becoming more and more aware of what's in their products. Uh, you know, as it started for me, it began with food and then kind of evolved into everyday consumer products and toothpaste still. I mean, and part of the reason is the conventional brands largely put the ingredients on the box and not on the tube. And so most people... Yeah have thrown out the box and just have the tube on their counter. And they, even if one wanted to look, they wouldn't be there and yeah. they'd have to go and Google and look up the ingredients. Um, so I think that's been part of it that it's been a little bit slower. I mean, you really saw sunscreen and deodorants were the first categories on the consumer product side to get people's attention that they should care about the ingredients. Yeah. Um, and I think some of our most raving fans on our, our social media side are, um, influencers who really sort of help us tell the story about why you should care about your ingredients and also not just that you should blindly accept any sort of natural toothpaste that that was exactly why we're created it's yep. um, one should look for sort of effective replacements as well mm, incredible kind of wrapping up here talking on the the dental side getting into practices i know especially in healthcare if you have a consumer product it's key that you have that backing of like experts so how do you guys approach getting into new dental practices? I know it's a lot of word of mouth, but what does that kind of distribution look like to them and that process? Yeah, so we when we first started, it, we actually went to the dental conferences. And so there's mm. many that are hosted and there are some actually that are more sort of niche and natural minded. And then there's the, the sort of the bigger, more conventional dental conference. I don't know if you're working in dental office, if you ever I've never been, but I, I know they do have those, yeah. Yeah. And that was actually a really great forum for us to go and talk with. I mean, I remember at that point we had launched for about two months and we're out there and there was a lot of skepticism. I think people thought it was fluoride or nothing essentially mm -hmm. at the time. And it did take a lot of having long conversations with them. And, and frankly, sending, I remember sending just giant stacks of research studies that have been done on hydroxyapatite mm -hmm. and really trying to convince them that, look, this is actually a, a viable and effective alternative. Uh, so that really was done by a lean team. I mean, we, we don't have many people working in our company. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, for we try to be as still as scrappy as possible. And, um, and so a lot of that was just word of mouth and going to conferences. Um, and then COVID happened a, yeah. a few, few years later and that the conferences essentially came to a screeching halt, as did the dental offices. I mean, if, yeah. you know, back then the offices were closed for many months. Um, yeah. And so that ch channel we figured sort of we're uncertain as to when that would come back online. Mm -hmm. um, but it has, and and we got to the point with almost being in a thousand offices now that um, we do need somebody to help us manage that channel For because sure. there's a lot of sort of um, handholding that needs to be done sort of on the accounts, et cetera. And, and actually just trying to grow the accounts beyond word of mouth. Um, and there's many dental offices out there. For sure. Well, I like to wrap up each episode with this. Um, if you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? My biggest piece of advice is to not be afraid of failure and mm. specifically being okay with failing fast. 
I think that that's something that as a type A person, and frankly, me and my co-founders were all that way, that was really hard to do something that wasn't successful all the time. I mean, you're used to kind of being on a track and things going your way and you doing well. Um, that failure has this bad connotation. Hmm. Uh, but I think that's sort of the best advice that I could give is, is embracing failure as sort of a means to ultimately get where you want and need to be. Hmm, for sure. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out RiseWell at risewell.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.